Welcome to the Airman Helping Airmen podcast. I'm your host, Khalid Wright, CEO, Air Force Aid Society. Join me as we chat with extraordinary guests, share stories, and learn how amazing people are making a difference in the lives of so many Air Force and Space Force families. Welcome to the Airman Helping Airmen podcast. I'm your host, John Farrell, Chief Operating Officer of the Air Force Aid Society. Join me as we chat with extraordinary guests, share stories, and learn how amazing people are making a difference to the lives of so many Air Force and Space Force families. I'd like to first begin by introducing our guests and telling you a little bit about his background. His name is Errol Dobler. Errol served as a SEAL team member and surface warfare officer in the United States Navy for eight years. He began as a ship driver, 91 to 93, and then became a Navy SEAL, 93 to 99. Obviously, he had service in Afghanistan as a result. Errol decided to lead the SEAL teams after a career-ending injury. And despite many of his professional successes, he would follow up with unexplainable self-sabotaging behavior, some of the things that we'll talk about later. As he left the military, he decided to become a special agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation and did that for 13 years. He specialized in counterterrorism operations across the globe as a SWAT operator, and he is the recipient of the FBI's second highest award for bravery, the Shield of Bravery. After 13 years, he decided that he would leave the FBI at a massive frustration with what he considered incompetent and destructive leadership. Over these many years of his life journey, he's came to realize that no matter what professional or personal hardships he's experienced, that sometimes these things repeat themselves. One account of these purposes and principles will be found in this interview as we go through today. There's a process that could be followed, and as a result, Errol is now an author. He wrote the book called The Process, Art, and Science of Leadership, How Leaders Inspire Confidence and Clarity in Combat in the Boardroom and the Kitchen Table. Simultaneously, he decided to start his own organization, his own consulting firm called Leader 193, where he currently employs the process, art, and science of leadership in a variety of ways with corporate clients across the world. During his time as a Navy SEAL and FBI agent, he designed a five-step process for effective leadership and tested it in the most high-stakes, high-stress environments possible. And after proving that it had the success in the field, he's now integrated into corporate and business philosophy across the world. His true process of leadership comes not only from his impressive resume, but just like all of us who have trials and tribulations in life, it takes into accord his stumbles, mistakes, and unmitigated self-sabotaging screw-ups, his words, not mine, instead of his resume. He's had multiple academic and conduct review birds while attending the United States Navy, and it brought him to the brink of expulsion numerous times. A little bit of a rebel. We'll talk about maybe his rebel ways when we get through that. His near removal from the Navy as both a surface war officer and special warfare officer for conduct unbecoming of an officer was also in play. His poor personal decisions put a black mark on his professional reputation that he worked so hard to build over all those years. But through all of this, he's came out on the other side and was saved to be considered an excellent leader. He's a top note key speaker across the globe who inspires and motivates audience to become the best versions of themselves as both a leader and individual. His educational accomplishments is a BA in political science from the United States Naval Academy, right down the road from where I'm sitting here in Annapolis, Maryland. And just like everyone else, he has a lot of social media links that we'll make sure that we include for you at the end of this presentation. So having said all that, Errol, how are you doing today? Tell us where you're, uh, where you're meeting us from this morning. I am meeting you from Carbondale, Colorado. So that's just about 20 miles outside of Aspen. So we're, we're deep in the mountains here. 
Okay. All right. Well, that sounds like a beautiful place. I've been obviously around Colorado Springs area and, and if it's anything like that. I'm sure it's beautiful. Well, it's about, we're about three hours from uh, Colorado Springs, but we just moved out here a little over a year ago from the East Coast, from uh, New Jersey. I'm originally from New York, and uh, but we haven't looked back. The kids love it, the nature, the whole thing. So Colorado is is, is our new home for sure. And it still looks like you're still pounding a little bit of the... Yeah. <laughs> you're in great shape still, which is a wonderful thing. So obviously you must keep up the workout regime. Well, we're trying. We're trying. That's a lot of what we try to employ with our clients. Just a real necessity besides the aesthetics of exercise, but the whole topic, if we choose to cover it. That's awesome. I'm, I'm a big time runner, so I can appreciate what you're talking about. So having said that, let's start from the beginning of your career, Errol. Can you tell us a little bit about your background experience in the United States Navy, besides what I may have mentioned, and what inspired you to join the Navy? Yeah, you know, the it was an interesting story about getting to the Naval Academy. I wasn't necessarily, I didn't come from a big military family. And I didn't have my sights set on the Naval Academy from a young age or anything like that. I was a lacrosse player in high school. That was my primary sport, which I was going to go to college to play. And one day, my coach sat me down and said, we've got to start figuring out where we're going to send you. And I just kind of said, the Naval Academy. My neighbors went to the Naval Academy, so I was exposed to it. You know, I saw some really cool pamphlets. And in one of those pamphlets that I saw that my neighbors gave me when I was probably, I don't know. 10 or 12 years old, there was a small section because back then, and now you know, we talk about dating ourselves, this is early 80s, maybe even 70s, small section on the Navy SEALs. And it was back then, there was no information. So it was like four paragraphs and a picture of some guys in those UDT shorts. And for some reason, the ambiguity of the paragraph spoke to me. Like, what are they trying to say here? So I think maybe that was in the back of my mind for a while. And then when it came time to decide where I was going to go. And then once I got to the Naval Academy, that's when I started to recall my kind of interest in the SEAL teams. And then that just became the, the dream to join the SEAL teams. Well, I can understand the lacrosse thing, being a Maryland boy and growing up here, you know, lacrosse is king, especially as you get closer to Baltimore, uh, University of Maryland, and obviously the Academy, like you talked about, that's great. So now, you, you, obviously, most people, when they hear the world SEAL, they understand the Hollywood aspect, what I would say. But tell everybody what a ship driver is. What does that mean? You did that your first couple of years, and then I assume you applied for and ultimately became a Navy SEAL. Yeah, for sure. So at the Naval Academy, there's a certain number of billets. You get your commission to the Navy when you graduate, and they have this thing called service selection night, and you go and pick where you're going to go. And certain billets, like the SEAL teams, had a limited number of billets. So they went by class rank. They had only 10 billets that year and I was number 11. So I didn't get it. And I remember standing there looking at the board, being pretty distressed. And one of my instructors, he was a Navy captain, came up to me and you know, said, what's wrong? And so I told him, I said, you know, I don't want to be on a ship and that's where I'm going to go. And I was distraught. And he says, well, what ship are you looking at? And I said, I, I don't care. He goes, well, hold on. So he said, see that ship right there? It was the, the USS Monongahela. He goes, that's an oiler. And he goes, the oilers are out to sea all the time. Pick that ship. And I was like, sir, didn't you just hear what I said? I don't want to be on a ship. And I certainly don't want to be out to sea all the time. He said, no, if you want to be a Navy SEAL, you have to get your qualifications quickly. Okay. And you have to do it faster than everybody else because it's going to be competitive. And the best way to do that is to do a great job on that ship. And he was right. That's exactly what I did. So 
surface warfare officer. We're out, out at sea, right, controlling the seas. And I was on the ship. We'd say, USS Monongahela, supplying the fleet. So there's a battle group. We'd go in and we'd be on station for sometimes a day, refueling the entire battle station. It was a grind. It was thankless. And it's one of the areas of my background that I don't talk about a lot, not because I'm not proud of it. I am proud of it. It's not sexy. People don't really love to hear about it. But now as I grow more and more into this role, I'm more confident bringing the less sexy but very applicable aspects of the Navy to light. So that was it. And they were good to me. They, I told them early on that I wanted to become a SEAL. A lot of people said, don't do that. The surface warfare fleet, they'll, they'll eat you up. They won't let you do what you want. And I was like, well, I've got to take a chance. I've got to tell them what I want to do. And they were super supportive. They helped me in every aspect to get my qualifications and supported me in my lateral transfer. So yeah, that was my time in the surface fleet. Like I said, not so sexy, but in hindsight, I loved it. And I wish I had done a couple of things differently to let them know that how much I appreciated what that community does. It sounds like you obviously made the best of your experience. I know as I call it being the bridesmaid, I've been the bridesmaid in a few jobs that I really wanted and didn't ultimately get selected. And understandably, you're going to have disappointment in that. And, and, I, and it's so great that you're able to take that experience to your betterment. So as you transfer into the, spiel, the SEAL community, you did that for a number of years. Talk about your SEAL experience. Of course, we've all heard about having to go through the SEAL training, and I get that piece. But you did it for a number of years. You did it in combat for a number of years. And then you unfortunately had a pretty self-sustaining injury that ended your career in the SEAL community. So give about that journey, please. Yeah, so we've got, there's a couple things going on. So my, weirdly, my combat experience was in the FBI when I was attached to the 75th Ranger Regiment. So after I got injured in the SEAL teams, I got medically discharged, spent three or four years in the private sector, and I was just ready to get on with my life. I was in the New York City on 9-11, and like most people, that changed the trajectory. I decided I needed to get back in the fight, put my name out there. FBI was the first to respond, and I got myself medically cleared, which is a whole different story. And then that's where I went on, and we could talk about that combat experience if you want. But the SEAL team experience, again, was in the 90s, right? Not a lot going on in the 90s, except a lot of training, which was good. We got stood up a few times and then stood back down. But the, what people don't see, there's so much in, in the SEAL teams now, and everybody's well aware of Bud's training, and they're great stories. They never seem to get old. But what you don't see is the Navy SEAL teams is still part of the military. It's still a grind, right? There's still paperwork to fill out, right? There's still some people, not everybody in the SEAL teams is a superstar. They're people you just, you don't get along with, right? There's still all the normal stuff that goes on in any other military unit. Now, we like to say is that stuff is perhaps we'd like to think at a higher level because the, the selection process is so stringent, right? So the people who really just can't get along with anybody, they're generally weeded out pretty quickly. So when we say that person is not a high performer, we'd like to think that's relative to a very high scale that we've got. But that being said, it still doesn't take away from the fact that it is very much a military unit. It is very much seeped in bureaucracy, like every other military unit. There is not an unlimited amount of money going to you. Maybe SEAL Team 6 gets a little bit of the benefit of the doubt of that money sometimes, but every other SEAL team, you're scraping for updated equipment and such as well. That said, it is the basis for most of my leadership philosophy. 
It's where I saw a lot of great leadership and the poor leadership I saw. The good news about that was that was the outlying uh, behavior. You know, poor performance and poor leadership, people like would get surprised when they saw it. And that's a great thing because you're always going to find it. And it was still at a fairly high level, even poor performance. At the end of the day, though, they were very clear on performance standards. And even when you got into your platoon, okay, outside of BUDS, right, you went and started operating, people got removed from their positions, right? It wasn't this, let me just promote them to a higher level type of thing, which you see in a lot of places to include the military and certainly the private sector. So that's kind of the more mundane aspect of the SEAL teams. But I loved it. It was still a very high level place to be. But yeah, it wasn't perfect. And just like you see today, there's still plenty of reports out there. SEAL teams have their issues, but I think that they work very aggressively to mitigate those issues, especially around leadership. Great. So one of the things that we talked about, and I always, it's so funny how we have comparables in life. You know, I think back to my time as a young airman, I wasn't a very good airman initially. I became a good airman, but I talked back, needed a haircut, looked poorly in uniform, didn't do what I was supposed to do. And some of the things that you mentioned as I read your bios, you had some self-sabotaging behavior that ultimately resulted in issues for you when you were in the Navy. So would you share what happened and what you learned from that? Yeah, you know, it was strange. I love the military. I love the discipline, but I guess as far as discipline kind of conformist people go, I was a bit of a rebel. And it wasn't always bad, right? It was my delivery is really ultimately what needed work. Because I wouldn't just complain. I would never complain for the sake of complaint. It's just not who I was. I was more of a let's not complain, get it done. And then in the after action, let's express some of our concerns. But for things that really bothered me that I thought were just bad, for an organization that I thought were bad leadership, that I thought were bad policies, okay, I would speak up. And again, even in hindsight, the things that I would speak up on, I don't think I was necessarily wrong, okay, to at least have the concern and say, I'm going to have the courage to express it. My delivery as a young man was probably very poor. And as we know now, your soft skills, they, they matter. As much as sometimes we like to think it shouldn't matter if I insult you the way I talk, it's what I'm saying that matters. No, it's, <laughs> it's not. Because if somebody is just off put by your tone or your attitude with what you're saying, they're not going to hear the substance of what it is. So from that standpoint, I had the ability and the courage to speak out, to have my voice heard, to stand up for things that I thought were wrong. I didn't always get the result I wanted because perhaps immaturity was uh, largely playing a lot of those places. <laughs> so that was the one thing about if I could go back again, I don't think I would have changed. And I still, to this day, I, it's who I am. It's what I believe. But my ability to express how I feel might allow people to listen to me a little more and engage in a conversation. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. You know, it's like, what part of mandatory don't you understand? That's an order to do it, right? You can't do that in the civilian world. And you know, the person that loves me best is about 45 degrees my left listening to us here. My bride has a saying, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? It's how you present it. So I think that's a big part of it. I, like you said, probably wouldn't change the message. It may have been uh, phrased a little bit different. Yeah, for sure. And in the military, it's a little different, right? Because you get orders in the military. And if you're going to start questioning those orders, whether they are administrative orders on a Tuesday afternoon or combat orders, it doesn't matter. They're orders. You're walking a finer line. The FBI was a little different because there was a tremendous amount of autonomy 
that you had as a special agent in the FBI, right? You weren't necessarily assigned cases. The good agents went out and found their cases, right? And they worked them how they wanted to work them, obviously inside the guidelines of what was required. So from there, it did take, and then I started to learn this at the FBI a little better. You're presenting your case to continue on with an investigation in a certain way. Now, the FBI has come under scrutiny recently, and quite honestly, it's deserved in some of their leadership challenges that they've got. But what I will say, even in that environment of what I consider overall poor leadership, if you presented a case, and I was a pretty aggressive case officer, as you might imagine, if you presented your case logically, if you presented contingencies, like I know this is dangerous and I know here are some of the things that could happen, but here's how we're going to mitigate it. Again, like your wife would say, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. When I was measured and thoughtful about how I said what I wanted to say, even when the leadership disagreed with me, I got a lot of my stuff approved based on... So that was a place where I was able to still take some of the lessons from the Navy SEALs from a personal young man and maturity standpoint and apply them. Now, that's not to say ultimately in the FBI, obviously I left because I was frustrated with the leadership. So there's some of that. But generally speaking, how you say what you want to say matters. So that's a great segue, Errol, into something that you're passionate about, leadership. So I guess the magic question would be, how did you become an effective and excellent leader? What roles did you take out of the United States Navy and the FBI that can be shared with our listeners and watchers on the vodcast here that would be useful for them in their positions? Yeah. And a lot of it, I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version, obviously, but a lot of it came from traumatic brain injury that I suffered that I didn't know I suffered from for over 20 years. And that kind of validated my own process. And I know that your audience will probably there's obviously interest in the military about traumatic brain injury and what we do with it. So if that's something that we want to move towards, we can, because it's related. But what I figured out, okay, and this was in hindsight, as I put it together formally, but I could always remember places in my leadership journey where I did these things I'm about to describe. Because I would look at myself and say, okay, I had some tremendous successes as a leader, okay? And then, like like we talked about, I had some tremendous failures as an individual and a human being. And I went back and I said, well, why? What, what the dichotomy between those two things, to, even to me, was striking. Why sometimes would I be able to operate in the most stressful environments and have people tell me on a number of occasions, I've never seen an operation go like that before. That was the best I've ever seen under dire circumstances. And at the same time, have people tell me, I can't understand how somebody like you behaves like you do. Like, I, you are going to get yourself booted out of this organization. How does that work? So when I went back and I looked, I said, what was, what was happening when things went right? And what was happening when things went wrong? And there was a formula. And it was the same formula all the time, right? And this is the problem-solving formula that is the basis of what I try to present to people. There is a trigger, whatever that trigger is, that generates an emotion, Okay. That happens. So whether you are planning a military operation or you're walking into a room and you see somebody you don't like, there's a trigger, there's an emotion, okay? And then we fall back on learned behaviors based on that emotion that we're probably not even aware of, right? We automatically go to those behaviors. And however ill-conceived it may be in your head, you're making a plan to address what's happening in front of you. Then you act, and then you in some way, shape, or form reflect. That happens no matter what. Okay, so 
If we can be aware of each one of those elements, we're going to start making better and conscious decisions. And then when we reflect, be able to say, well, that was a great success. I can repeat it. Or that was terrible. Where in that process did I fail? So every time I had great success, which was usually in the actual work environment, right? Doing SEAL operations, doing something that if you did it wrong, somebody might get hurt, there might be mission failure, or God forbid, somebody might die. I was always aware of the emotion that was triggered by what was happening. I can just think back a million times going, okay, this is happening and this is scaring me. That's allowed. What is the behavior I need to go to now based on this emotion I'm feeling, which is in this case is fear. I need to go to a very focused calm and a very focused reflection back on our plan, right? So the fear, I wouldn't do this or fade. I go, all right, I'm fear. I know I have fear. I know I need to now consciously calm myself and focus on the elements of our plan, right? And then I would go to the plan, smack, situation, mission, action, command, control, communication. That formula is applicable everywhere. So when I had great success, that was the formula that I followed. Out in town or maybe just administratively, I didn't. There was a trigger. Do this report. My emotion was, F this report, F this bureaucracy, that's stupid. And then I would just act on that. I would say something stupid or inappropriate, right? Instead of going through the process that I went through when it really mattered. So I just wasn't able to bring that conscious process to areas outside of operations. And that was it. So then once I came and, you know, cause when you put together your leadership consulting firm, you've got it, you've got to be able to articulate what your philosophy is. And that's how I kind of put it together and now help people start to apply that philosophy that I use in very dangerous situations everywhere in their life. So that's kind of in a nutshell what the philosophy is. And that's probably not uncommon, those experiences that you're going through. I'm sure most people, depending on what they're going to separate in their personal and professional lives, experience those same things. So having explained the process, tell me a little bit about how do you know that it works and how do you know that you're effective? What's the end game? Yeah, so the end game, there's a couple of end games, first of all is conscious decision-making, okay? In the end, if you're aware of all those things I just described, okay, and you can look back on the results and then say, I like that result, that was good, so therefore I can repeat everything in that process again and we'll get the same results. So now it's repeatable, okay? Likewise, you're making conscious decisions, you don't like the result, you can go back and say, where did I fail? So for example, you're going into a your team meeting for your sales force, okay? And you've asked everybody to really dive into the new sales management software that everybody hates. There's a new system in place. And you said, everybody will do, put five of your best, your top prospects in there. And we're going to start using this thing. And you've got a week to start filling it. We go to our weekly meeting and I look and see nobody's done it. And I'm furious as a leader. Now, there's the trigger. Everybody ignored me. Right. There's the emotion, anger. Now I say to myself, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to act on that anger? You might say, I am going to go with the anger. I'm going to act angrily. All right. And then you go in and you make your plan and you say, okay, my mission is to scare people straight. And I've got a series of actions that I'm going to do that, right? Whatever. And the meeting ends and three people go to human resources to complain about your conduct and two people quit because of what you said. I can look back on that. That's not a failure in my mind to the degree that I can look back on it and go, okay, where did that go wrong? Well, it went wrong 
in my conscious decision to allow myself to act on my anger. All that teaches me is that's not an instinct I can trust. So I've just learned something. I can't trust when I get that anger feeling to say, okay, I'm going to act on that anger. Some people can. So now I've just learned something. Conscious decision-making process. Next time we go through, there's a trigger. There's the anger. I remember, wait a second. Last time I consciously acted on this anger, bad things happened. Let me try something else. Let me try logic. Let me try compassion. Let me try whatever it is. So that's the end game, first and foremost. Conscious decision-making based on the elements that you go through all the time. So that's the end game. How do we know it works? Well, again, if you can go back and do that process I just told you, then it works. Second of all, people like to say, oh, I act on instinct. I've been doing this a long time. And I said, look, that's great as a leader. But what you can't do if that's all you're going with is what I just described. You're going to have trouble repeating successes. And you're not going to be able to identify where the failures occur and why they occur and the very specific place you need to address. So that's the one thing about acting intuitively. And I tell people, look, even if you're a success, you have to understand your intuition because you need to train people. You can't hold people accountable to your intuition. You've got to give them that process. So everybody kind of gets with that. So that's kind of the end game on uh, where my process is. Conscious decision-making so you can repeat successes, you can train on that thought process, that problem-solving process, and you can find problems and where they occurred quickly and adjust for them. Well said. So that's a perfect segue to the other side of the coin. So you had stated earlier in the conversation that you left the FBI due to incompetent and destructive leadership. So what are some common mistakes other than what you've expressed already that leaders make in a continual fashion? So, and I'm getting more comfortable talking about my time with the FBI. It's been several years. I left on my terms, which is fine, but I was angry because I loved being a special agent, right? I loved working cases. I loved the actual job. So which should give you an indication of what my frustration was. So what was some of the frustration? The One of the biggest things was, like I told you earlier, if you are an aggressive and good investigator, special agent, you'll find your own cases inside of the area that you've been assigned to work. I worked terrorism and the area of my area of operation was the former Soviet republics, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And back in 2003, that's all that mattered, right, for terrorism. So I would find cases, right? You do your research, you recruit sources. I was very good at recruiting sources. And the point of frustration that I had was I would have a case, I would make a case, and then I would get to a point where I needed approvals to do certain things, whether it's authorizing illegal activity for my source, whether it's asking for a bunch of money to support some type of travel that we wanted, whether it was coordinating with some foreign government because there was somebody there that was going to be willing to talk to me, right? There comes at some point, if your case gets big enough, you're going to have to ask for support, which is fine. That's part of the bureaucracy, which I don't think is necessarily bad. What started to frustrate me was when you bring a case from zero to now it's very high profile, and all of a sudden, everybody now wants to tell you how to do what you do. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. And I would say, you're, look, I'm not going to do it that way. And this kind of comes with how do you <laughs> say what you say, because I've already thought about that. Okay. So please don't be offended that I'm not going to take your advice, but I didn't get the case here because I don't think about all those things. Right. And I'll tell you why I'm not going to do it your way. And I would go through. And then that started to bother people. A, 
you're being insubordinate. You're not doing what I tell you to do. And I would say, yeah, but there's a reason because you just read my case file. And now, like, this is a two-year-long investigation. And now you think you can just jump in <laughs> and tell, right. you know, you don't have enough information. And then, so that was the first thing. So there was a lot of ego in those people that would, I would have to ask requests of. And how dare you say you won't do it my way? And then when I would tell them why I wouldn't do it their way, that I had actually thought about it, well, for some reason, if you've got a huge ego, that's even more of a blow to your ego. Because now I'm not just being insubordinate and telling you you're wrong. I'm explaining that I've already thought of that and here's why that won't work. Then what would happen a lot is that that individual had the power just to shut you down, okay? And this might have been a low level. So one of the problems, I don't have necessarily a problem with bureaucracy, okay? Because there's a necessary, bureaucracy is necessary sometimes if you've got a large organization. But the FBI had so many levels of bureaucracy. You had to get approval at so many levels that somebody very low of importance and in the chain of command could effectively shut you down for those reasons. So where else did then I have a problem? I was generally undeterred. So I would go around that person and I would tell them, I said, I'm going around you because this is your, your ability to shut down my case is it doesn't make any sense. It's not based in anything except you're mad at me for telling you I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to go around you. Look again, that I don't regret doing that because a lot of times when I did that, my case did get approved, right? The higher level people would see it, but invariably that person I went around got promoted and then I would see them again. (laughs) So there was a lot of ego in if it wasn't your idea or if I didn't allow you to then to start manipulating the case, all of a sudden you want to be a case agent. When you had your chance to be a case agent, you are now an administrator. That was, if I had to sum it up, probably the most frustrating part of it. But then it was the vindictiveness after I would express how I felt about what they were doing. It was, it became very vindictive. Okay, maybe you won this one. I'll get you the next time. Right. And they would. You would see them. It was like clockwork. You'd see them that you'd be doing a case that they had nothing to do with. And then I'd hear from somebody, well, I just got a call from this person and they're telling me not to really pay attention to what you're doing. That goes on enough. You start to get very frustrated. And that's kind of the spirit. I saw that at a fairly low level, but not really because it usually went up to my cases a lot of times went up to the headquarters at the highest levels. But what you're seeing now is it exposed at a very high level. And so everything that you're seeing in the news, whether you love the FBI or hate the FBI, the criticism that's happening is exactly what I saw, ego-based and a little vindictiveness. And so that's kind of, maybe I went off a little bit too much on a tangent on that, but that's, those were my main frustrations with the FBI. I appreciate that. The main point that I think you hit that's admirable is, is you told the guy or gal, I'm going to go around you. It's different if you go complain to mommy or daddy about something, but you don't get the benefit of the doubt to at least say, I'm officially putting you on notice and I'm going to go to somebody above you. It's during our uniform wearing days, they're all just following the chain of command, right? You didn't get what you needed to do. So now you're going to follow that in a different manner. So that leads me to two final questions that I have for you today. And and this next one is predominantly for what you and I experienced. For people that are currently wearing the uniform or veterans, why would you encourage somebody to join the military? And if so, after they've joined, how do they develop or improve their leadership skills while serving? Yeah. So I think that the military, it is clearly a calling, right? Just like the FBI is a calling. Things like that are a calling. I would not deter somebody from joining the military 
if it's not a calling, right? Well, I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll join the military. I say, yes, go, right? Because you will get a lot out of it. Today's right now, I know recruitment is down. I know morale is down. And I think for good reason. I think some of the things that are happening are being implemented in our military are wrong. And it's just, they're not consistent with the mission of the military. But there's a reason everybody gets their head shaved and the ladies get that cut, like they look like a little boy when they join. And it's a reason everybody wears a uniform. It's because we are all the same. We are the same. We do not care if you came from a rich background. We do not care if you came from a poor background. We do not care what color of the skin you are. We do not care what your religion is. We are now military people, okay? Now, what I would tell people who are like, wait a second, I don't want to be a robot. No, no, no. What the military does is it allows you to be yourself. It does not take your personality away, but what it shows you is how to operate on a collective as one inside of your own personality. And that is the beauty of what the military is, even though sometimes it looks like it's trying to be taken away a little bit, right? The ability to act as a team while you can still express yourself as an individual is the beauty of the military. And that's a skill. That's why private organizations love military people, because that's what we believe. We want you to be your own person. We're not trying to take your personality away. What we're going to do, though, is allow you to operate in sync with everybody around you while you do maintain your individuality. So I encourage people to join the military because things are going, there's ebbs and flows, okay? Right now, I think we're on an ebb, small part, right? Whatever this, <laughs> the bottom of the wave is, right? It's going to get better, right? But the general theme of the military and what you get out of it and the appreciation that you'll have for it won't change. So that's the first thing. How do you get better at your leadership when you're in the military? You have to be, I think a lot of the things, right? We learn from guys like you and me who've been there, who've made the mistakes. Listen to the old timers like us, right? Be aware of how you're voicing your concerns, okay? Don't cower. If you've got a concern, voice it. But understand that the squeaky wheel doesn't always get the grease, especially in the military. As a matter of fact, it's, I can't hear that squeaky wheel anymore. Right? That might be in the private sector a little more true. It's not in the military logical, methodical thought process and articulation will get you what you want, will get you at least heard. So watch the leaders around you. See what you like, see what you don't like. Emulate it. Try, experiment, right? You're allowed to make mistakes as you're developing as a leader. Just make them conscious mistakes. I tried that consciously. That didn't work out so good. Let me move to another area and try that. So that's kind of what I would say for those looking to join the military, I encourage it. And it is still the greatest place to learn how to be a leader and learn about true camaraderie. It will, we will be back on the upslide in no time, I'm sure. Thank you. I agree. I totally agree with you. So I always like to conclude, Errol, with this question. One of my fans is an old guy like you and I named Dan Rather. And Dan Rather does a show called The Big Interview on Access TV. And he interviews everyone, politicians, world leaders, celebrities. And he always concludes this with this question in every interview. What question should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? The only thing that we didn't get to cover was the transformation of the TBI. And my injuries resulted in traumatic brain injury back in the 90s. And back then, when I expressed concern about my head, not all the other injuries I had, they dismissed me. And 
it wasn't until 20 plus years later that I hooked up with a doctor by choice, by chance rather, who's specializing in traumatic brain injury, a non-pharmaceutical cure for it, heal the brain, not medication to mask the symptoms. So that's the only thing that we didn't cover that I think that people would want to hear. Maybe we do that another time, but I'll leave it at this to say there is on the horizon a treatment for traumatic brain injury, which will really be a treatment for PTSD and all the other things that our veterans are going through that heals the brain, non-pharmaceutical, brings the energy back. So there is hope out there for that. But other than that, I think we covered some good stuff. I think. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you leaving with that too, because honestly, you know, there's so many people that, that have these issues and they go undiagnosed. It doesn't mean that you were serving in the military and you had TBI. Yes. You could be doing anything and had TBI. And I think many times, like you, you find out years later, wow, I wish I would address this sooner. So I really do appreciate your time, sir. And you left us with a lot to think about. And we will make sure that all of your social media links are attached to this. So let me conclude everybody by one saying thank you for listening to today's episode of Airmen Helping Airmen, brought to you by the Air Force Aid Society. To find out more about us and how we can make a difference, please visit www.athis.org. Be sure to search for Airmen Helping Airmen podcasts that are available through Apple, Google, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your pod scraps. And click and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of everyone at the Air Force Aid Society, thanks for listening and joining us. And please review social media. And I can't help but say thanks and have a great Air and Space Force and U.S. Navy Day, everyone. <laughs> Take care, all. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Airmen Helping Airmen, brought to you by the Air Force Aid Society. To find out more about how we make a difference, visit AFAS.org. And then be sure to search for Airmen Helping in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of everyone at the Air Force Aid Society, thanks for listening and join us on social media.